Hello and welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is an interview show that gets deep into the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. Available in video format at FunkinStuff.net and on YouTube, Truth and Rhythm can now also be enjoyed on the go on its podcast audio edition from FunkinStuff.net, iTunes, and most leading providers. I'm your host, Scott Dr. Jake Skolfi, musicologist and author of Everything is on the One, the First Guy to Funk. If you don't have your copy, you better hop on over to Amazon and, and get one. Whether you're watching or listening, I thank you as always for your interest and support. My guest today is visionary bassist producer Bill Laswell, who since the late 1970s has been one of the most prolific artists of the recorded music era. It is a challenge to encapsulate his broad and groundbreaking career, so here in a bridge version of his 2016 bio, I'm going to read that to you now. So as a sound conceptualist who has always been a step ahead of the curve, Laswell has put his unique stamp on nearly 3,000 recording projects by artists like Mick Jagger, Yoko Ono, Iggy Pop, Laurie Anderson, Brian Eno, Bootsy Collins, Nine Inch Nails, Motorhead, Peter Gabriel, Blur, The Ramones, George Clinton, Pharaoh Sanders, the Dalai Lama, Staying the Last Poets, Africa Bambada, Whitney Houston, Manu Dembango, Fele uh, Kuti, Bernie Worrell, Buckethead, and most notably Herbie Hancock, who collaborated, uh, he collaborated with Herbie for the huge hit Rocket in 1983. Bill Laswell's radical remixes, or as he calls them, reconstructions, of works by Miles Davis, Carlos Santana, Bob Marley, and a vast array of dub-related atmospheric ambient projects have further defined him as a revolutionary iconoclast. Setting up base in New York, Laswell helped generate several innovative recording labels like Celluloid, Subharmonic, Black Arc, and Inner Rhythmic. Along with Chris Blackwell, founder of Island Records, he established the Axiom label in 1989. MOD Technologies, his most recent imprint, includes projects by Method of Defiance, Lee Scratch Perry, Praxis, Garrison Hawk with Sly and Robbie, The Process with Red Hot Chili Peppers drummer Chad Smith and pianist John Baptiste, and progressive futuristic music from Ethiopia. As a player, Bill Laswell's bass lines resound with rare authority and groundbreaking projects by Tableau Beat Science, his avant-garde funk band material. The Apocalyptic Assault of Last Exit, which uh, includes Sonny Chirac, and the throbbingly intense power trios, Massacre, Painkiller, Blixed, and Blade Runner. Laswell's artistic reach has consistently extended to the continent of uh, Africa, creating evolutionary controversial projects in Morocco, Senegal, Mali, Gambia, and most recently, as I mentioned, Ethiopia, where he has established a base for developing artists just as he did in the South Bronx around 40 years ago. Personally, I first became aware of Bill Laswell as a Los Angeles disc, uh, uh, club disc jockey in the early 1980s when I was spinning many of his experimental hip-hop and electronic 12-inch singles that he produced and sometimes played on. Those were great, but I really became a fan when he started working with many of my music heroes from the jazz and funk worlds, such as Herbie Hancock, P-Funk alumni, Bootsy, Bertie Worrell, and many others whom he musically expanded and challenged, just as he did myself as a listener. An eternal musical renegade, the enigmatic Bill Laswell has always played by his own rules. And so with that, I officially welcome Bill to the uh, Truth and Rhythm program. Thank you so much for spending time with us today, Bill. How are you? 
I'm good. Thank you. It's an honor to uh, to connect with you and have you on the show. So really appreciate that. Uh, are you uh, coming to us from New York today? Is that right? Yes, sir. I'm in New York. Very good. That's your home base. That's been your home base for uh, decades now, right? Yeah, for quite a long time. That's right. So, Bill, could you take us back? Um, start with um, you know before you you got to New York. Um, how how did you get into the bass, and what sort of um, you know what what set your musical foundation in place? Well, I gravitated to bass because most people played guitar and and drums in local bands, and if you were going to be in a band and function, you had to kind of find your place and bass seemed to be the logical position. So I kind of gravitated toward bass and it's more with, had more to do with R&B and beginnings of funk music and then just one thing led to another. And did you have any formal training or you just learned, uh, picked it up on your own and, and who were some of your early uh, sort of musical heroes? No formal training. Uh, I played in the high school band, trying to learn, um, you know, different instruments, not just bass, but bass saxophone and tuba, and very unsuccessfully. And <laughs> the musicians I gravitated toward were playing pretty fundamental uh, sounds. Chuck Rainey. Doug Dunn, Jerry Jamat, those kind of people. And later on, I heard rock music, which had more kind of adventurous lines and a technique in it. Was there much music in your, in your household growing up or other family members were musical or, you know, how did, how did you get that exposure and just really get so motivated toward that? direction um, not so much in the household and not at home at all it was more from outside you kind of gravitate toward what's going on in your neighborhood and if you don't want to be a criminal or a gang you know someone stealing you maybe gravitate more to music background there wasn't that many options yeah. So you eventually uh, moved to New York. What prompted you to do that? I mean, you figured that's where it was really happening? Yeah, it was pretty common sense. You know, it's, everybody's going to New York and everything's in New York. And uh, it wasn't that big of a stretch. And <clears throat> with a few other musicians, we migrated to New York and I think around 76 and then just started uh, harassing people for work, you know, at that moment. So that must have been, was that a little bit of a culture shock for you? What was it like going from Midwest to that scene in New York at that time? It was such a, such a um, fertile and active scene. Um, yeah, I guess so. You don't really realize it when you're kind of on the hustle and just trying to get things going. It's, um, I mean, it certainly was a 
a different environment, but you don't notice so much when your agenda is kind of the same. So did you really have to uh, do some hustling, I mean, and, and, and get some good gigs in a hurry? I mean, it's not cheap to live in New York. So. No, it had to do with selling a lot of acquired equipment, you know, amplifiers and a vehicle and things. And then you just negotiate with people, whether it's in a studio or a club or on the street. And yet it's, it, it is a hustle. And uh, sometimes you get lucky. So what would you say was, uh, you know, one or two of your first kind of key breaks that kind of set you on your path once you were in New York? Well, I met uh, people that were running CBGBs, the club, and I started to play with some of the local bands. And that's sort of, so there was a lot of them and that sort of stretched into different opportunities. And <clears throat> on my street where I lived was 8th Street, Manhattan near 6th Avenue. Uh, a lot of musicians lived there. And Brian Eno was a neighbor. So I used to always kind of hustle him for gigs. And eventually that caught up to me and I got a few things from him, which turned into recordings. And I was, you know, at that point, again, starting to play in clubs, and that started to generate press in New York Times and local papers. One thing leads to the next. You know. What stood out to you about Brian Eno at that time, uh, both as a um, personality and as a uh, talent? Well, you know, I liked his earlier records from a few years before. And um, he was clearly in New York, uh, sort of researching new things. And it kind of made sense at the time. So did the experience of going to New York just, I imagine must have really broadened your uh, palette in terms of you know the kinds of sounds and and textures that you were you were open to. I mean, you have such a um, broad musical um, you know reference uh, spectrum, you know, and, and I'm trying to get a sense of really how you were so open to that and and how you took in all those influences. Well, you know, I was whatever I contacted, I was of course interested in and thought that there was something new there but at the same time i was doing my own kind of research and that had to do more with music that was coming from europe and uh prog rock and different avant-garde music and every everything really from derek bailey and Anthony Braxton and 
groups like Magma and King Crimson and those things. I was investigating all that on my own. So it was kind of normal that I would respond to things, to other things that were developing here that might be related. Did, did you have to keep any other sort of, uh, you know, jobs uh, in, you know, the early going, or were you able to pretty much support yourself on the music side? No, I was fortunate that since I was born, I never had a job. <laughs> and uh, I wanted to maintain that throughout my life. Uh, I always thought it would be a pretty major distraction from developing a uh, sense of being and becoming. So I was able to avoid that issue. Doesn't mean you didn't do bad things. Hard to avoid uh, bad decisions, but uh, can get away with the reality of not having that responsibility. That said, Bill, it seems like you've always, at least from my standpoint, always put art before commerce in the music. So, you know, what is your philosophy with that? And, and has it changed through the years? No, I guess it hasn't really changed. Um, doesn't mean it's easy, you know, all the time. Uh, you find yourself in the position of kind of asking and begging sometimes. It's a little bit like filmmakers work. They don't always have the money and they spend a lot of time asking for it. I have that similar process with recordings and, and uh, existing, you know, so, but I don't ever apply to the fundamental job ethic. Did, did you ever encounter any music that you don't like that was a turnoff to you or are you pretty much an open vessel to, to almost anything? Um, you know, kind of trying to be open to most everything and very little of it, I would say I can't deal with it. There's very little. Um, I sh should always try to apply some consideration for for some of the music at least. And uh, I've, I've tried pretty hard to do that. I don't know if I've always succeeded. Uh, successfully at embracing everything and saying, well, that was fine. That's good. We got through it. But uh, I made an effort not to discriminate too heavily against other music. Now, is it fair to say that you're you're most comfortable in a studio environment creating as opposed to performing on stage? Is that accurate? No, not these days. I've in the last years been very comfortable performing live and have done so quite a lot and um, 
Studios natural because I usually have my own environment. Um, but live is fine. It's um, I'd say in the last twenty years, it's been very comfortable. So the first uh, group that you really started to make your mark with was through the material. Um, that's correct, right? Um, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, so that was like around 79-ish, 80, right in there. Um, what what do you remember about that, um, you know, that project? And, you know, what were you hoping to achieve through that? And did it succeed for you? Well, it's hard to say. It was a kind of a beginning of, playing ideas in public. Uh, and it seemed to, when it's when it translated and an audience appreciated it and it translated, it felt like it was a point, a kind of point in moving forward. Uh, I think it was encouraging and that moved to a lot of other things. Took time, but uh, over time it develops. <clears throat> now, how are you able to assimilate so many different influences? You know, um, how do you go about that? You know, if, do you ever have those discussions with other artists and, and talk about you know ways to, you know, because there's a difference I think, um, Bill, in taking in and assimilating, and then also then kind of making it your own. So how do you sort of navigate that? Um, it's really hard to say. It's it's kind of a little bit more intuition. And, uh, you know, I've been involved in these kind of sort of collectives where you might do, a, let's say someone says, okay, you do a night at a festival and one of the groups is Indian traditional music with electronics and the other one is total noise. And then there's something that's ambient and you have to play in all of those um, groups and then, and then in front of the same audience. And there's really no verbal kind of description about how that works you have to just go at you have to be in that moment of each moment and it's it's doable it's possible but there's no real uh way to explain that verbally you have to connect at that moment and i've been pretty successful at doing that without having really an explanation of how it happened. I, I just did it recently and I hope it can um, continue. I don't think it's an easy thing to do for anyone. So. How, how would you, if you were on the outside looking in, how would you describe your production style? You know, if I was an artist going in to work with you and you were at the boards, you know, what would I, what would my encounter with you be like? 
That's difficult. I would I would hope it would be you're meeting someone who's interested at least in in what you do and try to get to the essence of it. Um, and be concerned about you know a result that's has some impact and uh, which always sometimes always doesn't um, intent comes to mind uh, and then caring about what you do in principle you know you've made so many recordings you know is it more common for the artist to seek you out or for you to seek them out or is there a matchmaker somewhere how does that come together well that's a good question i mean it, it, it really works both ways there's not so many matchmakers left um but there are people who seek you out for sure and that's always positive and then you know tracking down people to get them to do things if you have an idea it's a little more difficult these days that's more that's harder but when people are interested in your work and they do track you down that's always a good thing and you always want to do the best work and um as far as someone in between it's getting a little more uh, rare Do you feel that you have a signature sound or quality to your recordings? You know, what, what might that be? Uh, yeah, I feel that there's a signature sound and that the recordings always express something you could find in past reference or in general, just from the characteristic of the artist um, to say what it is is a little difficult but um, usually people can sense a kind of feel and a tonality of something uh, overall sentiment at atmospheric sentiment speaking of uh, tonalities I mean that's definitely one of the signatures um, in your music but also you know the shifting tempos and you know sometimes you know jarring changes and um all these different kinds of passages that you experience when listening you know how do you feel about the split between you know being intellectual with the music and being visceral yeah i wouldn't know exactly how to make the difference um I think it's one of the same, really. Um, a lot of it is just being aware of dynamics that things don't get too complacent or something doesn't go uh, on and on being aggressive without any fundamental dynamic. A lot of it has to do with that. Again, it's intuition, I guess. 
do, do you like sort of knowing or do you think about challenging the listener? Um, yeah, I'm conscious of it, but I don't put a lot of effort or time into it, but I'm, I'm conscious of that, that people are hearing things and they're, they're aware of past things and they're hoping for future things and they're a little bit concerned with repetition or dynamic. What is your take on the, on the music industry uh, through the years? I would imagine someone like yourself um, faced a lot of challenges. We kind of touched on it, I think, earlier with you saying how you have to sometimes have to almost, you know, beg for money for certain things. Um, but what is your take on, on the whole system and, you know, how it does or does not foster development of artists? Um, well, I'm not sure there is a a real industry anymore. It's more to do with just who can carry on with whatever they can keep up with and on whatever level they can maintain. Um, you know, artists being artists, and I refer to that more to painters and filmmakers than musicians have always, they always have the need to generate funds to, to continue. And now it comes to musicians who are in a similar circumstance. Um, I don't know, there's no real industry. You know, you, you used to know a guy who owned a company and he liked your work. And so when you wanted to work, you go to that guy and you say, I've got this idea. And he, of course, likes the idea. He likes your work. And that guy gets older and one day he's not there. And you got the one after and the one after that. But one after another, they tend to disappear. And then you have people that do jobs and those jobs don't recognize your potential or your approach, your agenda, your rhetoric, your whatever theories you have, and whatever possibilities you can produce, which are usually kind of supernatural compared to just putting a song together. So you tend to find yourself in a difficult place. Yeah, it can be a, a real shame uh, in the case of a lot of great artists that were once, you know, at a certain level, and then also ones that maybe could have been great, but they don't get the opportunity. Yeah, that's right. Um, what about the, the internet, though, as a distribution system? You know, that's something that came along during your career, um, certainly changed the game a lot. Do you see that as sort of a, a bit of an equalizer and that, you know, it's so easy now to get the music out to people? Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's an equalizer. It's a positive thing. It's a new plateau. It's a change. It's all positive. It's great. But 
does it really get the music out to people? And does the artists really get paid like we used to? So it's a good thing only and a bad thing if you really go through the details of what it really means. Yeah, kind of a double-edged sword for sure. Yeah, mostly uh, one side heavier than the other. Hmm. Let's talk, uh, Bill, if uh, okay with you, I'd like to talk about a few uh, particular artists and acts that you're responsible for, ones that are especially near and dear to, to my heart. Um, and, and the first one is, and I'm going to uh, be holding up some of these covers. I've got a bunch of uh, your albums and CDs here I'm going to be holding up. So the first one I'm holding up is um, Future Shock, Herbie Hancock, which was really a breakthrough for you, a breakthrough for him, a breakthrough for music. How did that come about, and did you expect it to take off like it did? Um. Herbie came about because of a guy named Tony Myland. And Tony was working for David Rubinson, who was kind of managing Herbie. And Tony was going around trying to find new things for Herbie to do. And I had just worked with Brian Eno in New York, and I had a reputation of starting to work in the South Bronx with hip hop related people like Africa Bambata and the whole crew that was involved in the Zulu Nation. And uh, Tony kind of brought up this idea of doing a couple of tracks with Herbie to David Rubinson and to Sony. They had no idea what he was talking about. And so I put together two tracks in Brooklyn. One was called Rocket. One was called Earthbeat. And of course, I put together the tracks and titled the tracks and did it rather quickly. And we sent them to California, or we went to California actually with the track. And nobody really knew what the hell it was. Um, but then uh, over a few, a short time, it became clear that this was something different. And uh, so Herbie got on board with that and he continued and did uh, four more turned that into an album, which was Future Shock. And that was a good moment for Herbie. He was in debt with the label and everybody was looking for something different. That turned out to be a street record. It so that was the beginning of that relationship. Did, did were you surprised that it got over as big as it did, though? And I mean, did that that must have changed your life to some extent in terms of you know at least uh, funding you know some of your other interests and, and so forth? Um, it, it 
it was a surprise that that particular music exceeded you know it just blew up that was a kind of surprise i wasn't surprised in general because i felt i was going to do something around that time that was going to be big and going to be a surprise i just didn't know exactly it would be that particular thing which we didn't think at all was going to be so commercial but it happened to, to turn out like that did you ever um of course you ended up working on subsequent releases too like i'm holding up a sound system right now um and you did the um perfect machine together with herbie did you actually get in the studio with him at all or was it all done uh long distance no i was it was um even for future shock it was always a pretty good percentage of being in the studio together what was it like working with Herbie? I mean, I was a longtime fan from, you know, his jazz days through his experiments in the 70s. Um, I think you could say that with him, he was always just patient and open-minded about things. And if he didn't know exactly the origin of something or where something was going, or maybe it didn't fit his agenda, he didn't fight that. He kind of laid back and waited to see what was, because it looked like future to him. And so he laid back and he saw what the future's bringing. And then when he was, when it was time and he felt comfortable, he would respond. So it was always very easy, but I think he always needed a sense of musicality like he needed to know people were not just doing like pop stuff with no foundation no fundamental musicality he needed a little bit of depth to grab onto and if he could ever find that then he would respond naturally did you feel like you picked up anything from him in that experience well i was aware of his playing, you know, and I don't necessarily think I picked up music from him, but he was a great musical under musician who understood harmonics and phrasing and how to play with other musicians. And one of the great Herbie Hancock, Joe Zano, you know, Chick Corea, Larry Young, Keith Jarrett, they're the great keyboard players of a generation. So of course you're gonna acknowledge that first of all. And there's a kind of significant fundamental quality based on everything they touch. So you have to give that respect. And then uh, the Perfect Beat CD that came later in the decade, which I'm also showing, that was a, 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 a funk dream marriage, if you will, that had Bootsy on there and also uh, Sugarfoot from the Ohio Players. Um, how did that project come together with, with those three guys? Well, just from, from outside of Herbie, I had been working with a lot more with Bootsy and 
we had done things with Ohio players and it was just kind of uh, who's around, you know, like just let's bring these guys into this thing and, 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 you know, try, that's just who, who was in the room, you know, kind of. You, you must work and record very fast, Bill. Is that true? I mean, how, how quickly yeah. do, do you tend to not do a lot of, a lot of takes or how do you work? I'd say pretty fast and, um, doesn't mean there's not a lot of takes, but it, but it's, um, something that goes really quickly or you're going the wrong way. Well, they say usually the first take is, is the best so often. Depends on the musician, but that, that is a fact. And you also continue to work at the future to future CD here too. That one was a, a again another big departure in the overall sound of that one. On, on which one? The future to future with Herbie Hancock. Yeah, very different. Yes, a lot of time had passed. There was a lot of new people, and a lot of different music had come. So that was just part of that flow of what was going on at the time. So. But evidently, Herbie was still looking to challenge himself, which is very cool at his age and all he's already done. I think he still is, and he's probably still challenges. And one of my favorite uh, groups of yours, Bill, is, is Praxis. I'm holding up the uh, first Praxis here, Transmutation, which had the incredible lineup uh, with Buckethead, who was pretty new then, and Bootsy, uh, Bernie Worrell, the great P-Funk keyboardist, uh, brain on drums. Uh, how, how did that project come together, Bill? Um, well, I, I had a consistent relationship with Bootsy, which started around, I guess, around 83 or 4. And, you know, we kind of kept in touch. And anytime there was work, I would always call him. And I got a a commission from, I can't remember the label, but it was a major label that had just signed a, a kind of band from San Francisco that were part of the Bay Area uh, lineup of groups that were kind of quirky and like a funk band with the usual California comedy aspect to it. And that was uh, Limbo Maniacs. Limbo Maniacs. Yeah. <clears throat> Limbo Maniacs came to New York, and they said, you know, they had a a friend who plays guitar, and he just sits in his room, and he wears a chicken bucket on his head and a mask, and. He has a couple other guys that are like sort of punk rock guys that play with him, but he mostly just sits in his room and practices. His dream was to work with Bootsy Collins and Michael Jackson. And I said, well, I don't have a real contact with Michael Jackson, but I work with Bootsy Collins. And so we sent Bootsy the video, which he loved. 
I think we even managed to send it to Michael Jackson, whose guitar player knew Buckethead. Um, but nothing happened with Michael. And Bootsy responded. And so I brought, I got a budget to do a record, and I brought Bootsy to New York to, to do a session. And it would be, we'll make up a record with the Maniacs people and Buckethead and Bootsy. That's how that came to be. Well, it turned out fantastic. I mean, that is really, I think, a land, you know, in my opinion, it's it's definitely one of my favorite records that you've you've done. And um, but that lineup really changed over the years. Um, in most most of the albums, you have at least one of these guys on it, but it's been a revolving cast um, over the yeah. years. Well, yeah, we tried to keep we kept together on a certain level, and we part. Uh, kept a lot of the same people and we had we really incorporated the DJs at one point with scratch pickles and executioners and DJ disc and sometimes Bernie and uh, you know it's the different different lineups but there's a lot of recordings. Yeah. 